Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Next Reel, everybody. My name's Pete Wright, 
And that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're closing the books on the Cosa Nostra with Coppola's 1990 final chapter, The Godfather Part 3. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you wear glasses, then hide your specs and guard your necks for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's turn it over to Games Master Stephen Smart, currently debating with an Italian opera star as to how to properly pronounce Cavalleria Rusticana. So we can find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Holiday from 2006, directed by Nancy Myers and starring Kate Winslet, Cameron Diaz, Jude Law and Jack Black. Congrats to at Snuggly Mama who guessed it on Image 2. You're entered into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. Hey, we got a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, uh, wrote in with his rebound on The Godfather Part 2. How'd we do? After what I said about The Godfather last week, it seems unfair for me to judge the sequel after only watching it once. My initial impression is that this film has a more leisurely pace, so I can see why it was difficult for Pete. There were a lot of scenes that I found impressive in this film, and I sometimes liked the flashback scenes more than the others. However, the structure lacked some of the fluid simplicity of the original. For now, I'd say it's well short of the excellent first film, but ask me again in a year and I'll watch it a second time to revise my opinion. Your rank 57, my rank 51. Look at that. That's still pretty close. Far short. Still pretty close. Exactly. And what is this? What is this all? What is it all about? I, it's a leisurely place. So I understand why it was difficult for Pete. What's that all about? You think? Uh, you have pointed out on some of our longer films <laughs> that they're a little struggle. What do you think? It's a. Uh, we need the Godfather Part Two, the short word uh, version. <laughs> Where's the Reader's Digest version? I- <laughs> Well, let's just say noted, noted. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. So I'm pretty excited about mine. And it's it's a teaser. It's the, the teaser for The Circle coming out in April um, with uh, Tom Hanks, which is, yeah, of course, why I picked it. Because, you know, <laughs> Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. I mean, come on. Uh, But no, but I mean, really, more than that, though, it looks really creepy. And it looks like a really good episode of Black Mirror. And I I really... Oh, that's totally what it is. Oh, yes. That's why it feels so familiar. Yeah, right. I know. Because that show, it's like, that's exactly what that show is doing, is telling stories like this. Um, I haven't read the novel that uh, Dave Eggers wrote. Have you read the novel? No, I haven't. I haven't read it yet. I know it's been on my list for a while. And I know he wrote uh, A Hologram for the King, which uh, Tom Hanks was in the uh, the uh, movie adaptation of that. And he's written some screenplays and some other novels and stuff. Um, I uh, I haven't read it. I'm really curious about it now after watching the trailer because, um, you know, it just it's, it's super creepy. It's it's everything really positive. You have um, Emma Watson working at this great company that feels kind of like Google, kind of like Facebook, really hip, uh, you know, cool tech company. 
And, uh, but she kind of, and, and it's all about like, we're always watching, you know, we're, we're, we know everything that's going on. We want to know everything that's going on in your life because we can always just work together to make it better. And that's kind of the impression that it gets. And Tom Hanks is kind of the, the Steve Jobs or, or the Zuckerberg running this company, very positive and exciting and energetic. Um, and, I don't know. She starts kind of she she runs into John Boyega who works there and it sounds like he's kind of showing her some some of the darker side of things. And uh so I don't know. I'm 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 really excited by this teaser. It doesn't give you a whole lot, but it does set up a really creepy feel for the whole thing. Um it's directed by James Ponsolt who uh, who did the spectacular now. And um, and I, I, which I still haven't seen, and I, I kick myself for not having seen that. But uh, one of these days I will. Um, but this just looks really good. I'm really excited about it. He wrote and directed it, and uh, it's coming out in April. What do you think of it? Oh, I loved it. I thought it looked great. Uh, I, I, you know, the second I saw the the campus, the Circle Campus, you know, I, I, of course that's that's the new spaceship campus for Apple, right? Have you seen the the construction no i haven't oh my goodness that is apple they have built a giant glass spaceship ring in cupertino it it's all it's they're due to move in first quarter i think of 2017 so it's almost finished been they've they've been working on it for years it looks just like this with the beautiful landscaping you're walking through it it's gorgeous the whole thing is glass it's the, the the outside is glass it's like bigger than the pentagon it is a giant campus and it looks just like the circle so then you put tom hanks up there in a graying beard and the long sleeve black uh kind of mock turtleneck and you and and they put cameras everywhere it is it is facebook google apple and uh, and a thriller with emma watson with an english or an american accent like i am curious all over this film yeah we have this on our list for a uh for a film board um, come April. So it's going to be a fun one to talk about. I'm very much looking forward to it. And I can't wait to see a full trailer just to get a little bit more. Um, but um, yeah, that's the circle. It looks like April 28th is uh, when it's released. And the only other release date right now is the Netherlands, May 11th. But I'm sure it's going to be um, spreading pretty well everywhere uh, as the uh, as the year progresses. Speaking of things that are well-planned, Andy... Yes. I'd like to talk to you about my trailer this week, uh, Fast and Furious 8, original title, The Fate of the Furious. Have you seen this trailer? I've seen it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, <laughs> The Fate of the Furious, the the F8 yeah. of the yeah. Furious, whatever, yeah. however you is want. That, <laughs> is that clever? That's pretty clever. Oh, it's very clever. <laughs> I can't wait to start seeing that license plate on people's uh, sports cars. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I didn't get the Furious movies for a long time, you know, and then it was a couple of years back. I did the the whole binge, right? I did all of the movies and, and I feel like I got it. And it was just, you know, just close, just stop thinking and just jam your foot to the floor. That's all these movies are about. And I need to just be excited about that. And now I think I, I think I got it. I think I've, I've kind of got it because I'm actually excited about this movie. They amp this thing up. A lot. I thought driving the cars between skyscrapers in Dubai was was uh, you know a hell of an effect. This one, Andy. Oh my God. They do. They've got the the tank. They put they put a tank a speed a sports tank. They have an eight way auto tug of war in a downtown street. They put a Lamborghini on ice racing 
a submarine. This is awesome. And and that they they they, they turn Dom into the sort of the whole Walter White esque uh, twist. Uh, I I think that's a very clever way to keep things exciting. This is so not the Fast and the Furious that, uh, you know, it makes me want to go back and watch number one. Let me just say that. I I think it would be, it it is a very different movie. And uh, uh, I'm I'm excited. It's, it is... Uh, who knows? Anyway, F. Gary Gray, uh, hit and miss with F. Gary Gray. I, I obviously loved uh, Straight Out of Compton. I'm also on the record as being a fan of the Italian job, but uh, I was not as excited about uh, uh, Law Abiding Citizen or The Negotiator. I mean, I, I just had some problems with those. But uh, generally, I'm 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 bullish on F. Gary Gray. The film was written uh, by Chris Morgan. I am also. A little bit hit and miss on Chris Morgan, too. Uh, 47 Ronin was not that great. I liked Wanted, but they gave Angelina Jolie some weird, stretchy forearms in the poster, and I've always been kind of cynical about that movie ever since. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, he's... <laughs> you know I'm right. Uh, they, he's the Fast and Furious 6 and, and Furious 7, uh, you know, those were exciting movies, and I'm... I uh, So I think for he's, he definitely has a voice for this kind of film. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in it. What'd you think? Oh, you know, I, I did the same thing you did. I, I went through and watched all of the, uh, the series and my wife and I just before seven came out so we could go see that one in theaters just to, um, you know, get into it. And uh, we had a, uh, a wonderful time just watching those movies because yeah, they're, they're great popcorn movies. They're super fun. Uh, lots of just over the top effects and chases and stunts and craziness. I had a great time. Uh, and yeah, F. Gary Gray looks like he's definitely bringing it here, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. So it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, but I can't believe that you totally forgot to mention Friday when you're going through the stuff that F. Gary Gray did that is uh, great, because man, right out of the gate, that one was the one that uh, I, you know, told me that he was somebody worth watching. I am stunned that I did not say that too, because that was one of my very favorite movies <laughs> I was a senior in college. We we watched that in college. We several watched that times. a lot in college because you know who introduced us to that movie? Um, what was her name? She is now uh, she's an ESPN sports broadcaster right now. She's like in she's she does baseball and her name is oh she's now she's kind of famous and she oh. she was an RA. She worked for me in Resident's life. Believe it or not. There you wow. go. And she introduced me to this movie. Her brothers used to make her watch this movie. And we I, I watched it probably a thousand times that year. Yes. Friday. So, 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 Ice Cube, so Chris Tucker. It's Chris Tucker in a in a place that doesn't uh, make you feel like it's uh, out of place. No, exactly. I can handle that, Chris Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to follow up. I got to find her and see if she still watches uh, Friday. There you go. There you go. I've lost my lust for women, Andy. And now my mind is clear. I betrayed my wife. I betrayed myself. I killed men. And I ordered men to be killed. I ordered the death of my brother. He injured me. I killed my mother's son. We've sold the 
casinos. All businesses having to do with gambling. We have no interests or investments in anything illegitimate. Don Corleone. The Corleone family. Partners with the Pope. They may cry blasphemy. This is business. The Godfather Part 3, Andy, a controversial entry to the Godfather uh, trilogy. This came out in 1990, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Coppola and Mario Puzo. Stars, you know, the usual crew, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, Andy Garcia, Eli Wallach, Joe Mantegna, George Hamilton, Bridget Fonda, Sofia Coppola, and others. Uh... This, we talked about this when we were, I, I think we were both a little bit nervous going into it. We both were curious because we had fonder memories of it than the media would let us believe it had earned. How did it hit you on this watch? I actually ended up still enjoying the film for the most part. Um, I I really have some some big issues with the film, but at the same time, I think that there is a lot going for it that... Uh, people tend to dismiss because it's. I think it just wasn't the Godfather movie that they were wanting, and it, it wasn't the. You know, there were there were casting issues, there were story issues, um, and yes, I think all of those are there. But I do think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening as well. And so for me, I find it an easier film to watch. Weirdly. Um, now that I have seen it because I know what I'm getting into. And so every time I go into the trilogy and I hit Godfather Part 3, I can watch it knowing that there are these issues and I can just find the other elements for me to enjoy. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I think it's a funny experience I'm having just right now talking about it. Having watched it, uh, you know, obviously in the last couple of days, uh, I... I finished the film immediately after it, and I wrote some notes that I, I just, uh, I felt very strongly about it. I did not like it. I did not have a good experience. It actually has aged on me better than uh, that initial sort of response would would have let me, kind of what I would have expected. Um, there, I think the biggest challenge that I have with the film is that I watched it in such close proximity to the other two, and by comparison, it is incredibly clumsy. It doesn't have the same sort of intensity. Uh, it doesn't have the same sort of uh, dramatic build to the violence uh, that that actually plays a stronger role in the other two films. Uh, it, it, the parallel story that we get between uh, you know Corleone and, and Vincent uh, doesn't play as well uh, for me as the the parallel story in in the second film. Uh, does so there there are some elements uh, that are that are particularly clumsy in just how it was put together uh, that are really frustrating and of course we have we're and I'm sure we're going to be getting into the issue with Sofia Coppola and and her portrayal of Mary uh, there are issues I have about the character though that I feel like uh, merit more conversation than the obvious stuff that we you know may or may not feel about the actress. So I'm really interested in hearing how, you know, hearing your thoughts on, on how that character fits. Uh, generally, uh, I, I really appreciate the sort of connection to the real life story, 
uh, that was going on in the Vatican and the Vatican Bank and uh, the connections to business. I think it's a really interesting sort of cultural uh, story, and and I think it it you know that story may have been more interesting uh, in a in a different context. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure that the Godfather Part Three was the right way to tell that story. I'm 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 definitely on the fence. You know, I, I I agree. I mean, I liked that he that Coppola and uh, and Puzo they actually pulled some elements from real life. Like you referenced these true events. Uh, it was the real John Paul the first that they were kind of referencing, who had been found dead in his bed, and there were all these um, you, you know people talking about how he was planning to re re rejigger the the Vatican finances and all all of that, and that he actually might have been poisoned. Um, not to mention this, the you know, tying into this whole Vatican financial issue and just all of this mess that had been going on um, and ties to the, the mafia and all that. So I really enjoy that he, he brought all that into this. And I, I enjoy that we kind of keep seeing uh, Michael Corleone moving the family up into different levels of corruption. And I, that's something I really enjoy about this film, you know, in, in the first film, it's just kind of the the five families that are in the the streets. The second one, it's it's there's this uh, more of a level of politics and how he's kind of getting into that, and you see that with the the senator that they kind of um, buy when they uh, um, they discover him with the uh, the dead uh, hooker, or they they stage that whole thing so that they can right. pretty much own him. And here, it's kind of the same thing. They've stepped up almost past politics, and now it's like this, they're entering this world of, of corporate interests and and uh, religion, and they're you know working into getting a hold in the, uh, the Vatican and all of that. I found it really interesting, and I actually really enjoy the way that all of that ties into it. I don't find any issues with any of that sort of stuff. What I find issues with is just the overall way that the story is constructed. I just feel like right out of the gate, it starts feeling kind of clunky. Um, you know, again, Coppola starts the film off with kind of a big uh, celebration as Michael is is kind of welcomed into this the fold of the Vatican and and is knighted and you know for giving them a hundred million dollars. And, um, but you get the party and you get the introduction of all the characters, all that stuff that we've seen before, but the character introductions are kind of rough and nothing really clicks quite as well. I, I really struggle with the beginning of this film almost more than the rest of it. It's, it's just so hard for me to connect with any of the characters and, you know, Coppola and Puzo, I mean, this is not a film Coppola ever wanted to do. He had been, I mean, they'd been asking him probably since Godfather Part Two, let's make another one. And he's always like, I'm done with the story. I, I told Part One and Part Two. That was the entire story of Cor Michael Corleone that I wanted to tell. There's nothing more. And, and they kept pushing and kept pushing. And, you know, this is one of these things. And we see this time and time again where studios, they rely on those past projects to, to get better. Uh, money and because they know that if it made X amount, if we do a sequel to it, it will make a little bit less, but it will still make us money. And that's exactly how Paramount saw this. And I think it was Frank Mancuso, if I'm not mistaken, who was um, working at Paramount and pushed Coppola and finally convinced him to do this because Coppola was in this position where he had just had a terrible decade, a lot of bad films, um, or I shouldn't say that, but well... <laughs> It's, it's arguably bad films, but certainly non-profitable films through the 80s. 
And I mean, he even said, I'm very embarrassed about my career over the last 10 years. Um, he just had lots of flops and he needed money. And so he finally agreed to do it only because he needed money. Do you remember though? I mean, what is your sense of his of his 80s? Do you remember how bad they were? I know he had some films in there that I liked. One from the heart, I think, was, yeah, Apocalypse Now, one from, it leads into One from the Heart, which I did not like. I, I never saw One from the Heart. Uh, I know that was one of their, uh, the small zoetrope films that he did. Right. Um, but I really liked The Outsiders, particularly the, the the recut version that he did like five, ten years ago. Yes. Um, Rumblefish, I remember liking. Cotton Club, I thought was okay. Um, Peggy Sue Got Married, I remember kind of liking. This is where this is where it falls for me. Peggy Sue got married, and then we have Gardens of Stone. I never saw Tucker was terrible. New York Stories was Tucker terrible. was terrible. Yeah, Tucker was amazing. Tucker was so terrible. Are you kidding? Uh, oh, I love Tucker. Oh no, I didn't like. So that. good. No, no. Well, to each no. his own. But I I think it's a brilliant film. Um, <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> stupid I, movie, stupid car. Come oh, on. <laughs> that movie okay, is a so, metaphor for Coppola in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you can say it's it's definitely a decade of difficult films for him. Films that did not go very far. And you could argue that actually this, despite any issues that it had, kind of gave him a little boost for the 90s because he followed this up with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, of course, then, of course, he made Jack, which was unfortunate. Um, but The Rainmaker, I mean, that was kind of a, yeah. a popular uh, Grisham. Yes, it was. So, you know, it's just one of those things where I think, you know, he was at a position kind of like he was when he did the first Godfather, where he had no power anymore. And this the studio knew that. He wanted six months to write the script for this, and they gave him six weeks to write the script. Um, and so... I think that is a big issue. I think that's why it feels just kind of sloppy and choppy. I, you know, I just don't think that he was given the time to really put the script together the way that it needed to be, and it's just unfortunate. But that, you know, that's what happens when you're working with these studios. That you know, they had to have a hit. I mean, my understanding is Paramount had to have a hit before the end of the year, and they were banking on this being the big hit at the end of the year to bring that cash cow so that. Basically, Frank Mancuso wouldn't get fired and Paramount wouldn't get sold. It didn't do what it needed to do, and all of that ended up happening. It got sold, and he lost his job. Well, I think you I think you said it. I mean, this movie feels like it was written in six weeks, and I think that part of the challenge with writing that quickly a movie this big is that you fall back naturally. I, I, it's absolutely to be expected, but you fall back naturally on what you know, right? And what they know is the formula about the the structure of the first two Godfather films, right? It just, it felt like they were trying in so many ways to mirror structurally the formula of the first two films, the parallel of these generational relationships, and it never quite, uh, it, it never quite delivers to the extent that the first two films did, certainly to the power, it is like a hollow shell of what we've already seen before with some elements that feel culturally relevant, but delivered by this hollow voice of these characters that just they, they just don't have the resonance that they once did. I think Coppola went into this film seeing, like having a different vision of it. Like he, from the beginning, wanted it to be titled 
the death of Michael Corleone. He wanted it. He never saw it as part three of the complete story. He saw parts one and two, like I said, as the complete story and always saw this as kind of an epilogue. He wanted it to be about this guy who had sinned and had not had to deal with getting punished for his sins to finally get punished. And that's kind of what he did. And you know, I mean, Coppola himself acknowledges that it was not the story people wanted. He says, in pleasing myself, I disappointed my audience. He didn't, you know, he he doesn't think audiences wanted to see a story about this old dying godfather who's got diabetes. It's just, it, it, was, it was an interesting yeah. direction to go. I think it's a really brave direction to go. And I really like that he chose to kind of tell that, tell it that way. But yeah, I can totally, I can totally see why people struggled with it because it just, yeah, it feels like a shadow of what the other films were. You know, he should have called it uh, Michael Corleone, uh, a a Godfather story. (laughs) That would have been prescient, right? (laughs) Anyway, can we talk just briefly about, I, I, you mentioned the diabetes, and I think it's important that this is an important angle. I think diabetes is a weird movie disease, right? You don't see movies about characters that are suffering from debilitating diabetes, right? We know it is a massive burden on this country, and it is a terrible thing to be saddled with. It is not a disease that we see on film a lot. Can you name another major character in a major franchise that is dealing with diabetes? Um, yes. <laughs> but not off the top of my head. I'm not I'm not cutting any of this white space cuz <laughs> we need to know how hard it is to think about this, right? I I just feel like it's a strange thing to portray on on screen, and I wonder. I just wonder. I'm not saying I disagree with you at all, because frankly, I I think it was it, it is actually fascinating um, that he chose to go this route. But what they ended up doing is leave Michael Corleone, the once great Godfather, begging a cardinal for a candy bar in the middle of the garden. And I I wonder if that is a, a point of disconnect for a large portion of the audience, that they just didn't find that something that they could believe. It felt Panic like... room. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh, Nelson... I knew I'd come well up with one. <laughs> well played, sir. Oh, All right, there's man. one. There's one. Nothing junior. in common. Tom Hanks's dad dies of diabetes. Not that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, fine. Do you see what? I, do you see my point? No, like uh, okay, I, I, I cancer, totally see your heart point. disease. Like we've got all those. Those are easy to to put on screen because we're familiar with those. But we don't know what diabetes looks like. And having him scrambling for orange juice in a candy bar in the garden minimizes the weight of the character and certainly the weight of his plight. If his condition can be solved or salved with chocolate, then suddenly we don't we don't feel as strongly about him. Is all I'm saying. I, I, it's just a hypothetical. It's just out there. It, it's it's a hypothetical. It's an interesting one, and I agree with you. It is kind of a strange disease, but again, that's what I think is interesting about it. Like he chose to do that. He chose to actually make it diabetes rather than a heart condition or cancer. And it's it's. I think that was just something that was really unexpected. And and we've said how Coppola really tries to 
uh, in the past films, when somebody's getting killed, he really tried to come up with really strange ways. And we even see that here where somebody gets stabbed in the neck with their pair of glasses um, because he just, you know, he kind of thinks that it's 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 kind of sick and, and you know, kind of a gross thing. And if somebody's going to kill somebody, you may as well do something new and different with it. Um, right. Same thing with the disease, you know, putting diabetes in. Now, I, I my understanding is that he had some people in his family who had had diabetes. So he probably saw diabetes a lot in his life and yeah, people giving right. themselves injections and all that. Very familiar uh, to him. Right, exactly. Anybody who has diabetes or, or has people in their lives with diabetes, it certainly is something that they see probably more than the average Joe. But I think to, to the rest of us, it is kind of a strange thing because it's just, you know, the, the things that you need to do to take care of that are are kind of uh, kind of different. And so... Um, I don't know. I I love. I kind of love that he chose to go that direction. I do too. And it offers us a great sweet moment between you know Michael and his sister, right, where she's preparing the needle, right, as he's giving himself his his insulin shot. And I I think that actually makes for a really interesting moment. And it's a moment that we wouldn't have without the vessel of this disease in the film. I just think it's a little strange. Now structurally, there's another point I would like your I'd, I'd like your judges ruling on, and that is the addition of incest as a major theme in the romantic relationship uh, between uh, Mary, uh, Michael's daughter. And Vincent, his the illegitimate son of Sonny Corleone from the first um, first movie. Do you think that incest, this this incestuous relationship between first cousins, is structurally relevant to the script or to the story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that these cousins kind of fall for each other, uh, it becomes the impetus that that uh, uh, Michael is able to use against Vincent to get him to finally uh, cut the ties with his daughter um, so that Vincent can ascend to the throne of the godfather and the head of the family. So I, I think structurally, it ended up having importance in that sense. You know, it, it had to be there so that Vincent could ascend to the to the top. Um, it is kind of a strange direction to go, though. It is kind of a weird one. It You could have the exact same thing happen without it being cousins. The entire negotiation really is one more about power, right? They, they make it power over love, right? They make it this sort of um, more sort of Shakespearean, uh, you know, perspective. But really, the, the decision is, do you want to be the Don— uh, or don't you? And what are you willing to give up to have it? Right? You could. He could have given him anything to give up. Anything in the world he would be able to give up. Give up the drugs on the streets. Give up the whatever. Give up whatever you want to give up. And instead, they made it this incestuous relationship with Corleone's daughter. And and so I I don't actually believe that it was a necessity. Uh, that incest is necessary. It could still, like you say, it could still have been a romantic um, encounter, and he could still have had some relationship that they didn't need to be cousins. It was made all the more challenging because the relationship itself wasn't believable. And I think I'm trying to figure out and put my finger on, is it a script issue? Uh, Is it just, or or was it uh, just that it was not portrayed well enough? between these two actors. Yeah, I well, certainly I think the script element is definitely there. It is such a strange decision to go with. Now, Coppola talked about how his, I believe it was his grandparents or his great-grandparents had been cousins. 
And that, you know, some people in his family say that's why his his side of the, the family is all the weird ones, uh, which is kind of funny. Also, that would have been in like 1860. Well, and it was kind of a, it was a forced upon them sort of thing. I guess his, whatever it was, great-grandmother or something, got some disease and her nose had to be removed. And so nobody would marry her. And so her, some somebody in their family forced her cousin to marry her so that she wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't be a, an old maid. And that's where that Good whole Lord. line of the family came from. I know. <laughs> so strange. Wow. Yeah. But, um, so, so I guess from that perspective, and you know, we've talked about how Coppola really is a family man. He really is all about family and, uh, it just embraces all of that. And so I think it's one of those things where he's like, well, you know, it's kind of in my family line and it's definitely not the norm, but it poses an interesting thing to put into the story here. That for me um, is a is a big weak spot. And so I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, the incest element of it always feels uh, just strange and uncomfortable and kind of unnecessary. And I think that they could have gotten through the whole thing without ever having to have gone down that road. The, the, this other piece of it that he willfully put, you know, as as the, the backup, we know there were complications around casting Mary Corleone. I, I, absolutely there were. We'll talk about the the issues there. But that he chose his daughter to put in this... <laughs> Very strange part, a very strange romantic relationship. Uh, I, I suddenly the nose thing makes more sense. Maybe it's it's a yeah it's a it's a tough thing. I mean, I think um, you know I, I I just can't help but feeling bad. I mean, I I have issues watching Sophia. I I think actually my my issues have lessened as the the more times I've watched this film, I found it less problematic. Um, just because I think I know it's there. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is that they really both started paying for, paying the price for his decision before they started, essentially before the movie was released, while they were still shooting. I mean, they were issues right away. I mean, um, I can't remember which um, magazine, I think it was Vanity Fair, got wind of this casting decision it was Peter Boyers. He did an article under the gun in June of 1990 while they were still early in production, it, talking about the the production problems and how inexperienced she was and all this sort of stuff. And it started this whole snowball effect of just this vitriol and hate and anger at Coppola for making this decision. And it really affected her on set. And he talks about how much um, how difficult it was for her, uh, you know, how, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard because he obviously put her in this, in this position and she had to kind of step up. I mean, she's like 18 or 19 at the time. And so it was, it was kind of difficult, but everyone, it, it created this intense pressure on her. So I, I definitely feel for the family. I feel for him. I feel for her. Um, and, and he even says, there's no worse way to pay for your sins than to have your children be included in your punishment. So I, I feel really bad about uh, about all of this whole situation. Um, yet I can't help but kind of wish that it had 
um, gone a different way with the casting. Uh, you know, I do too. And I, I feel worse having read how venomous people have been. Critics have been. Critics who should know better have been about her, you know, performance. It was, I, you know, it was not a great performance and it did not do wonders for the film. It, it definitely bogs the film down in some areas. But, but the personal attacks on the family and, and on her were um, really uh, inappropriate. Yeah, and again, it's one of these performances. I mean, I, I think it's Pauline Kael who uh, she kind of is like, you know, I, I kind of started getting used to her. And that's how I kind of feel now as I watch the film. I kind of get used to it. And I find that it's a lot less distracting. And I, I'm glad because, man, I know the first few times I watched this, it just it grated on me and really pained me to watch this film. But But this time I watched it, I'm like, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's it's not the greatest, but I'm not hating it. So, you know, he he, uh, Coppola said that um, this was, uh, in in many respects, making The Godfather Three became, um, you know, his experience of making the 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 biggest home movie ever made, right? And 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 that's, you know, you already mentioned just how much of a Family Guy he is, how much of his family, the good, bad, and the ugly, he throws into these films. His family members are in it. They're doing the music. They're doing everything. It's all about family. Adding her to the cast makes him feel even more comfortable because it's just another family member that they can be making this movie. It's all about his family culture. It's all about his history. That's what we're watching on screen through the eyes of this godfather. Um, and and it it is it, the part I think that pains me the most is that we are sitting in judgment. We, the people of the world, are sitting in judgment over you know essentially his his family films, and that's a, that's that's sad, uh, but not in, not excusable. He makes it all the more he makes it all the more meta for uh, for us. I mean, when he writes the film so much about family and having right. Michael really in this place where he's older now and he's you could argue wiser and he's he's now looking back on his life reflecting. You know, the money might not have been everything. It's the family. That's what it's all about. And I mean, right at the beginning, that's his whole. His, you know, his uh, letter that he's writing to his children, the only wealth in this world is children. You know, uh, that's exactly what he's saying. More than all the money and power on earth, you are my treasure. And uh, so, yeah, it's so funny that that uh, it's such a strong thing for Coppola, tying his family directly into this film. In And, you know, it's it's art. It gets criticized and... When you know, inevitably, those who are in it are going to be part of that criticism, and it's uh, it's you know, I guess it's just one of those things. I mean, his wife actually uh, said, uh, Coppola's wife Eleanor said, Well meaning people tell me I am permitting a form of child abuse, <laughs> so oh. I think that one could argue that uh, it was it might have been uh, the wrong decision. But it was a tricky one. I mean, they the studio had a really hard time getting this movie going. And then Winona Ryder had to drop out right before, like the day before she was supposed to start working because she gets to their set and she says, oh, I, I'm suffering from exhaustion from just finishing this film Mermaids. And Paramount wanted to stop production, but it took so long to get it going. And Coppola knew they had this December deadline. He didn't want to stop the momentum. So he decided the day before uh, they went in front of cameras to have Sophia do it. So, you know, it's just one of those gambles, I guess. And it just didn't pay off. It did not. Um, Shall we talk first shot, last shot? Let's. 
first shot, we've got a sky and a tree, and we pan down to the former Corleone, uh, Corleone property on Lake Tahoe, uh, the boathouse, and we see a statue of Mary. It's definitely a decaying uh, estate. And then the last shot, we have Michael alone in a chair in Sicily after flashing back to his dances with all the women he's lost in his life. And then he puts on his sunglasses. He slumps over dead, falling to the ground, and we fade out. In terms of a, in terms of Michael's story, it's an interesting parallel, right? I mean, this is the, it's we start on decay, and we end on decay. It's it's a it's a dark uh, way to go, but it fits. I mean, knowing that Coppola wanted to call this the death of Michael Corleone. I think it really tells yeah, that there's story. There's no, no other way right? to end. It starts with decay and goes to death, and that's it. It's funny. I I, I find the opening funny. It's more than just the first shot. It's the montage of of the estate. Right? Is um, it's an interesting way to open the film, knowing what he went through and had to go through, sort of the gauntlet he had to run to to make this this film. Um, I, I find it really interesting. It sort of opens as a as a bit of a slap in the face. You know, we're going to start dark. Uh, and we'll just kind of roll the dice from there. Uh, the parallel uh, between the two and the fact that, you know, we have uh, Michael at the end of the film uh, alone with just his dogs, who I, I thought were pigs the first time I, I watched the <laughs> sequence. I thought he was there with pigs, and I don't know. I, I should tell. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so he's alone. He slumps over. He's got his shades on, and he he dies. Uh, it, you know, he dies alone, right? He has lost everything, and his efforts to launder his entire life to lift his family out of crime, which really has been his effort since the first movie, was to to find distance from the family, um, and and now he ends up dying alone. Uh, in such stark contrast to his father, who who dies, you know, in the riches of the orange grove with children around him, you know, with a child around him, it's um, it's notable. Yeah, I, I think it works nicely, and I think it also, um, as far as the theme for the overall trilogy, I think it works there as well. You know, you get at the end of the the first film and the second film, you know, you have Michael kind of ascending the throne. And uh, the second film, it, interestingly, the second film very much ends similarly to this one where he's alone sitting on his estate. And then, of course, we begin the third one with that estate in complete decay and then leads to his death. Which, and we talked about this last week, right, which was just in, in so many ways, uh, Michael is a failure to his father, right? I mean, it's the stuff that he's tried to do. Everything he tries to do, it ends up falling apart. His marriage... Uh, the family, his kids, they, they everything ends up uh, in in disarray, and here we are opening the first film in disarray and ending the film alone. It is it's sad, really, really sad. Um, casting uh, Janet Hershenshun, Jane Jenkins, and Roger Musenden cast the film. Obviously, we've got the old standbys, Al Pacino. Uh, what do you think of the What do you think of the hair? You know, Coppola and the hair, I mean, that was quite a quite a big decision. And I know Paramount and Coppola fought uh, copiously about that decision because, um, you know, he felt that we needed to not have the slick back look that uh, we were used to with Michael because 
this was a man who no longer had his power and he thought cutting his hair, making it kind of that that kind of steel gray sort of look would reflect kind of that, uh, you know, he's that older man who's lost his power, much like Samson, much like King Lear. This is a man who's no longer at the top of his game. Paramount really wanted him to have that same slicked back hair look, but Coppola's like, that's not the film. That's not the film I'm telling. Um, so in the context of the film that he's telling here, I think that it works. I like his hair. Oh, I do too, actually. I can't believe I'm over perseverating on his hair, but I really like it. I like the whole, I, I like what it does to him uh, as a character. I think he looks very cool, uh, particularly for 1990. Yeah, right. Um, I, you know, I, I got to say, Pacino in this film, um, he brings so much more emotion to the story. And I think that uh, it, it's so nice. It's, you know, knowing this character, having seen so much of this character over the last uh, several films, finally getting to a place where he really, um, ha- he's he's in a place where he isn't bottling his emotions up all the time. And um, I, t- I got to say, you know, that moment when he's kind of confessing to the Cardinal, um, that really hits me. I mean, that's a really powerful moment. This This man who's just like, you know, he's so corrupt and he's so broken. And here he is finally getting those words out of his mouth. It's it, it's just, it's devastating to watch. And as much as you might not like Michael and who this man is and what he's become, it really is still a very touching moment. Oh, I absolutely agree. And uh, and it builds so beautifully. You know, one of the things we talked about, obviously, in the, the his first assassination scene in the restaurant uh, in the first film we were talking all about I, I was just really locked onto those micro expressions on his face and just how talented a performer Pacino is in delivering so much with so little this film is absolutely the opposite you talk about the the confession scene it builds to the death of Mary in the the uh, on the stairs of the opera house in in uh, uh, Sicily where we have a, a seemingly interminable silent scream uh, as he is as he discovers she is she's been shot she's dead on the stairs he's he was holding her he falls back and his face just contorts and it I I could not help but feel that everything he's been holding in for the first two and a half movies it's all coming out on the stairs right there and I think it was it's just it's a performance of legend uh, that felt just sort of bottled up for that moment in that film and interestingly this is the first time in this uh, this trilogy that he does not even get an Oscar nomination for his performance here um, yeah. I think I think he's at the top of his form here and it's a really powerful performance and, you know, something else that I think is great is how he's now in a place where he's trying to reconnect with Kay. And I love her uh, just kind of closing him out so often because of what he's done to her in the past. And all the conversations they have and how, you know, she's just still is just so afraid of him and and she dreads him and all these these great things. But then you get these moments where, you know, he's trying to connect with her in Sicily and he kind of is like, come on, give me the order. And he holds the knife up to his own neck kind of playfully and stuff. And she's she's not getting she's not buying into that, you know. And so I love those moments between the two of them. It feels so authentic. So, yeah, I mean, him and Diane Keaton, I think just really both uh, really know these characters. And I think that they knew exactly how, how, to, how to continue playing them in this film. 
Well, and culturally resonant, too, because their relationship was one that was actually really modern and, and out of character for this film, for what we have seen. And, you know, watching them try to navigate, um, you know, having a family that is still connected through the children and knowing that their relationship is, is broken apart and how they, how they kind of navigate their sort of interpersonal communications. It was all in there on screen, and I thought it was, it was really elegantly done. And, you know, um, it, it, this, this very well could have been, um, you know, a, a film about divorce and the, as it was about, you know, organized crime. Yeah, right. Uh, Andy Garcia, uh, I, I got to say, Andy Garcia is Vincent Corleone. He's he's why uh, you know as, as good as Pacino is, uh, it's it's Andy Garcia is why I, I show up. I think he is just so wonderfully charismatic on screen as Vincent Corleone. I really like the guy. I'll I'll watch pretty much whatever he's doing, and uh, and and uh, you know from the moment we meet him in the office when he grabs his crotch in a meeting with the Godfather, uh, I'm I'm sold. I, I have a hard time connecting with him immediately. There's something about his, his you know, the first couple scenes with him, uh, they're very brief, but I just, I feel like those are some that are written really poorly. Like when he and his mom um, show up to, and they're not on the guest list. And then when he pops his head in kind of that playfully way, uh, when he's going to go in and see Uncle Mikey and all that, I just like, I don't, I don't click with those moments. And even when he first is trying to figure out who Mary is when, when they're chatting. Um, I struggle with those moments. It's, it's that exact one that you mentioned. That's where I finally start clicking with Vincent and liking him when he is talking with, uh, with Michael about, um, uh, about uh, Joey Zaza. It's funny. I, I, I think you're probably right. That's the, the first scene I remember really liking of, of Garcia is that scene. And now that you're laying out the entire kludge of his performance in the kludge of the rest of the entry of the party scene. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not memorable. That's that. And yeah. And that goes back to the point I said earlier. Yeah. Which, this yeah, party is just it's rough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, still, uh, it is a uh, it's a a great performance, and I think he holds up well. He plays well with uh, ultimately plays well with Pacino in this film. I think it's one of the relationships that does work, in spite of so many other relationships that don't. Absolutely, you already mentioned Diane Keaton uh, is back. Great, she's still great, and and great that we get more of her. You know, she's one of those actresses that I think the 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 older she gets, the better she gets. And I love that they found a way to visually and metaphorically tie that same shot connection for us of her getting kind of shut out of his of that dark part of his life every time. And we get that one more time here. It's just it's just brilliant. Uh, We mentioned uh, Talia Shire last week, uh, actually the first week, how excited I was certainly to see her in later in the trilogy because we get to see more of her. And I think this I think she does a great job in this film. She's more manipulative. She's more powerful. She's much more interesting uh, in this film than she ever was in the other two. People have pointed out how Coppola really seemed to kind of be pulling from Shakespeare more for this particular story with some of these characters. And she definitely feels like a Lady Macbeth working with King Lear here, you know. And, and I love mm-hmm. some of the the way that she's kind of uh, taken this uh, capo regime role over and is kind of working with, with Michael, uh, kind of helping plot and plan. It's not something that I ever would have expected seeing Connie do after the ending of Godfather Part 1. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was such a surprise watching her take as much power as she did, and yet felt totally appropriate. And again, you know, I mentioned the sort of modernity of the relationship between Kay and Michael in this film. This was another one of of giving her the sort of that that kind of power on screen. Um, I, I think was um, it, it was particularly interesting, and that she ended up being the darker of the pair. You know, that's another sort of counterexample. She wasn't trying to to keep Michael. Um, you know, healthy and safe because she was an a- patron saint and an angel. She was, she was, you know, ultimately she would have, she would have, you know, led the crime family. Uh, I don't think there was ever any doubt that she would have been, um, you know, the, she could have taken the role of the Don and led the, the crime family. We start seeing more of that as, as being sort of culturally appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've already talked about Sophia Coppola. Do we have anything to add here? Well, I don't, I don't really have anything else to say about her other than, you know, I mean, Ebert in his review um, gave a nice, a nice comment that I thought was actually, uh, it was just a, a nice thing to say. He said, there's no way to predict what kind of performance Francis Ford Coppola might have obtained from Winona Ryder, the experienced and talented young actress who was originally set to play this role. But I think Sofia Coppola brings a quality of her own to Mary Corleone, a certain upfront vulnerability and simplicity that I think are appropriate and right for the role so you know i mean there were people out there who were kind of fighting for her and and everything so well certainly and you know she absolutely turned around and made a um and 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 pivoted into a a career you know what i mean like she's she's doing all right yeah right exactly she's she's i mean she's won her own oscar and she's making her own movies now so i mean i i think that she has definitely um, you know, it, she learned from whatever difficult uh, situations came of this whole situation and has improved and made herself, I think, quite a talented artist. Yeah, absolutely. For whatever that is, she is to be respected. Uh, Eli Wallach. Oh, don't know. Ah, yes. Know. Yes, we indeed. We love him. He's great here. It's nice to kind of see him in here. It's He's one of those faces that just felt like somebody who could easily have fit into either of the previous films. So it was great seeing him here. I don't really have anything to say about him, but it was great to have him as a part of this one. Now, the the one, we, we do have a pivot because we didn't get Duval back, right? We That's didn't right. get Duval as a conciliary, and uh, he, he, wanted, uh, he wanted to be, uh, uh, he wanted more money. It was a simple budget thing. And so we end up with George Hamilton uh, here as the, the uh, playing the essentially the head of the charities, the Corleone charities. He plays B.J. Harrison. And I, I got to tell you, I think he was great. It's, it, the, the funny thing is, and it's just the George Hamilton baggage, I think. Yes. When he shows up <laughs> at the beginning, I'm like, what in God's name? <laughs> Is George Hamilton doing in this movie? You know, it's just so wrong. It's it's like seeing uh, Gilbert Gottfried pop up or something. You know, it just it just doesn't fit in my head. But you're right; he does feel like that sort of, uh, you know, smooth talking, high end corporate lawyer that somebody in in Michael's power is going to end up hiring as he's getting to this position. So it actually you know ended was? up working. He was what? Mitt Romney. 
Like that's who I, that's who would have played this part in 1990. It, I mean, that's who it would have been in 1990. Who was running this business charity organization, and then he would have gone on and and run the Salt Lake City Olympics, and then he would have got and run for president. George Hamilton, you know, that could have been his trajectory. That could have been. <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying. I thought he was fantastic, even though in this case, you know, Duvall. Uh, Duvall had had said much later. I think it was in the actor's studio. Um, he he said that he didn't think it was fair that they offered uh, Pacino uh, not just twice the the money that um, uh, that they had offered Duvall, but four and a half times, five times as much as they offered Duvall. And he said that's just not. That just didn't seem fair. And uh, and so he was written out. And they the the story that they had told about Duvall was in the in the film was that he had died before the. The, we pick up the the story of Godfather Three, uh, but Coppola has said that um, it, it does feel incomplete without Tom Hagen in the film. Still, I think Hamilton acquits himself quite well in this movie, and uh, I I thought he was it was fun. I agree. How about Joe Mantegna? Could you buy Joe Mantegna as Joey Zaza? You know, Joe Mantegna is one of those actors who I kind of always struggle with a little bit. I actually really enjoy uh, enjoy him. But there's something about him in certain roles that I'm like, I don't know if I quite click with him. And, um, I, but I don't blame him on, on it in this particular film. Because once he's kind of doing the stuff and he's in you know, the later scenes and everything, I think it works well. Again, I think it boils down to some of the really rough writing going on in that very first scene that, that makes me struggle with Joey Zaza out of the gate. Because his his speech at the at the round table at the big meeting, I think, is actually great. You know, yeah. I have made money for you. You know that that in that plea uh, and and the turn when he uh, when we discover that he actually is the betrayer of all the families is um, I, I thought it was terrific. I think you're right. It it was tough to to get used to him so early in the film, but I also think that there's something about Joe Mantegna, and one of his strengths is that. You know, if somebody on screen is going to get bit in the ear, you want it to be <laughs> Joe Mantegna, right? Like, he is good at playing characters that you want somehow to get comeuppance. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I felt like he, he earned that as Joey Zaza. I thought I thought he did. Uh, I thought he did fine. I have a hard time. You know, we, we've talked in recent weeks about the power of voice, of actors' voices. And Joe Mantegna has, has an interesting voice. And that's what makes him... Uh, you know, a great voice actor, great on The Simpsons. He's he he develops sort of interesting characters as a result of his voice. In this case, his voice is a little high for me, and I have a hard time imagining him as an Italian tough guy, uh, as a head of a of a minor crime family. So, uh, it was it, you know not necessarily a, a criticism, just a a strange sort of casting choice. I don't, I, I'm <laughs> not sure he was he was the right tool for the job. That and just the fact that it is it was just written. It could have used that six month writing. <laughs> like yes, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, Richard Bright is uh, back as Al Neary. Yeah, for uh, his third time, and he's finally uh, getting to do some big stuff. It was great, actually. I mean, he's done some other stuff, but he got a lot more screen time here. It was great seeing Neary. Um, really, just kind of you know, I mean, he's kind of uh, another capo uh, for The Godfather, and I loved seeing that. And he does a great job as kind of you know, as uh, Michael's right-hand man and, uh, you know, helping him with his illness and everything. I, I really enjoyed seeing him here. 
Uh, starring as enormous waste of talent, Bridget Fonda as Grace Hamilton. Yeah, she's done that a few times in her career, unfortunately. Oh, this, is, this was tough. The thing about Bridget Fonda, and I, I actually, I really like Bridget Fonda generally. But the thing about Bridget Fonda is that bad scripts are really bad for Bridget Fonda, right? Some actors can carry bad scripts, right? They can, they can somehow say things that are written poorly and make them somehow redeemable. I think Pacino right. is actually one of those guys. Bridget Fonda is not one of those actors. And this script and her part in it was written poorly. And therefore, she is a throwaway. And that is heartbreaking. I don't even get the point of her in here. What's What's interesting about the scene with, with her and Vincent, which is... It's just a terrible, terrible scene, uh, terribly written scene, mostly just because of the dialogue. Vincent, do you love me? I'm like, they just met at the party. And she's, what? What is going on? But the thing about it is there was actually a draft of of a third movie written by Dean Reisner in 1979 based on a story by Puzo. And Coppola, of course, dumped that whole script, except for that scene which I think is so interesting. From what I read, um, the scene where these two guys break into Vincent's house, it's in it's in the Reisner draft from 79, and it's nearly unchanged, uh, other than obviously the characters. But, um, but I find that really interesting, that this is kind of the scene that is kind of a holdover from that, that really early draft. And I wonder if that's why it just feels so clunky and and just out of place. But I don't know. I'm just, it, but it is sad that, uh, you know, here it is with Bridget Fonda, just wasting her time in it. Um, I, you know, of everybody in the film, I, I don't have a lot to say about many of the or about any of the uh, the the political cast or the church cast. Um, do you? Do anybody stand out to you in the Vatican? No, a, a lot of interesting faces, some interesting performances, but uh, I didn't have anybody uh, that I wanted to uh, that point out or anything. I think the only other family member is Tony, uh, Anthony Corleone, who decides, you know, I'm going to not finish law school. I'd rather sing at the opera. And then he stars in the first opera he does. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, is his father pulling the strings? Because he doesn't seem he wants that. But boy, did he ascend to the top of the opera world quickly. And that is so, that's one of those things that's so clumsy about this film. And and let me just say, he's it's it's not the greatest casting I, it, it feels again like it's it's not a great it's not a great part and when he is on screen with his dad it the, the things things bog down they slow down you got to admit it's not great no i totally admit totally agree the piece that i think frustrates me more than anything is that the trajectory of the relationship is is like it's a it, there there is no trajectory of his of, of his relationship with his father right we 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 assume that his dad is pulling the strings to get him this role, but there is no evidence of that on screen. There is no evidence. They never show us that his dad has any cares at all about what his son is doing after the, the opening party. We see him a few times. They, they cross paths. Mostly they're talking about Sophia and, or I should say, Mary. Um, but, and, and then we're suddenly at the opera. Uh, so it makes that, that sort of career pivot not believable. And I kind of want to believe it because that opera becomes a central um, sort of stage for a lot of what could have been really dramatic, cool 
stuff uh, that I feel like is just kind of lost. Yeah, I think it's just, again, not having the time to really structure the script well. They they just kind of shoehorned all of that in there because they're like, well, we have to have the big opera scene at the end because we want to have the big cross-cutting between some dramatic element happening and all of the assassinations happening at the same time. So we could kind of see all of that play out together. How can we do that? Hey, let's have the sun singing in an opera. And they just kind of wrote it that way. And it never quite got firmed up to, uh, to be as well uh, thought out as intended. That's my sense. Which Mine is too bad. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other notes of, of cast you want to talk about? Uh, just that, you know, we definitely see people popping up again that we had seen in the past, which is, you know, I love that when they do these things it, with these movies. You know, you get Enzo the Baker popping up again. Johnny Fontaine pops up again. Um, and, of course, there's Coppola uh, blood all over the place. I mean, not blood, but I mean, Coppola family members <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, family and friends. Martin Scorsese's mom, Katie, pops up in the film, too. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a, uh, a something that Coppola really was pushing, I think, with these to try making it as family as he possibly could with with both the just the people that he'd worked with and actual family. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about getting it made. Is it true that the Vatican owned Paramount? You know, that's what I heard, and I I don't know exactly how true that is, but uh, considering everything going on in this particular film, I do find that quite interesting. Makes it more believable, yeah, right? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, production cinematography. Uh, Gordon Willis is back. Gorgeous as ever. He and Dean Tavalaris really know how to work well together to make these films look just incredible. I was just constantly looking at these amazing browns that were uh, just filling the screen, just like, man, that's just gorgeous to look at. Um, so between, yeah, cinematography and the production design, I really was uh, I, I'm just stunned with what they pulled off here. Editing, once again, is broken up into pieces. Lisa Fruchtman, Barry Malkin, and Walter Murch. Uh, what's your what's your sense of how it was edited? I think so much of the problem we've we've sort of hung on the problem with the film we've hung on the script. I I think the the interpretation of the script in how the film was cut is also shares some of the the burden. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously Walter Murch had been around with Coppola forever. Um, I, the other two, I I don't know if they'd been working with Coppola on other projects. But um, I, I do know, I mean, we've talked about it. He liked to kind of split up the editing tasks. So I'm guessing he would do that here again and uh, and have these people kind of taking on different elements and stuff. Um, Lisa Frickman did work with him on uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I feel the editing is as problematic. Like as far as the, the way that it flows, I actually feel like it flows pretty well. Um, I just feel like that, you know, when you're when you're editing a a story that already has some issues, uh, you know, you're just not going to be able to fix it in the edit. So I think I think they walked in into a situation that they weren't going to win. 
Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. It it's it just feels so uh, clumsy. And I I brought up the the big opera scene at the end as something that is that's particularly clumsy because that's the scene where you want it to be cut nice and tight. You want it to be cut in a way that you can follow all of the parallel um, sort of assassinations that are happening to this this beautiful piece of music. You want to be able to follow some of the story on stage uh, that is going on because it's the story on stage when we see these kinds of constructions. It's usually that story is some sort of a metaphor for what's going on backstage and these other assassinations. And there and and there was none of that uh, sort of intensity, none of that gravitas that was brought to that entire sequence, the opera sequence, um, that, that was particularly earned. And I think part of that is just the way the, 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 the interpretation of the script from film. Uh, and so I, 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 it just, it just, it, it was tough. It was, yeah. it was more disappointing because I know of, of where we have just been weeks prior and how strong similar sequences are. Um, the other thing I wanted to, did you notice the sound, particularly the beginning, right? The whole party at the beginning was awful. The, the ADR was everywhere did they just not run mics on this movie at all and just everything was adr uh because it was it was bad you know i don't know enough about that my understanding is that uh sophia's lines ended up getting dubbed because her accent was just too valley girl um and so all of her lines had somebody else um reading them um and obviously the singing, I mean, certainly that's something that we've seen a number of times through these films. Um, uh, well, I shouldn't say it, uh, a couple times. Um, but all of the opera stuff at the end is definitely just, you know, when uh, when Anthony is singing, it's clearly just ADR'd because it yeah. never looks like he's actually doing any of the singing in those scenes. Um, uh, but yeah, I, d- I guess I didn't notice the rest of it. So uh, yeah, I just might have just... Uh, bought into it more i don't know i i didn't notice i found myself getting really hung up on it i heard it it was with uh, michael it was a vincent it was definitely with um with talia with connie um where it, and i think maybe it was it was concentrated more in the beginning of the film in the in the first act and and certainly that long party is pretty heavy adr the other piece was the foley that i i found myself getting really sidetracked by uh, the you know watching characters with wearing hard-soled shoes walking down carpeted stairs and hearing their shoes tap you know I mean those those kinds of things were, I I it hit me left and right I mean everywhere uh, those those little sound you're, things you're so sensitive Super annoying. <laughs> I don't know this was tough this was tough it's funny then, I, I just totally didn't notice them yeah it's funny well, and you usually do. That's what surprises me. But I'm most interested in your thoughts on the music. Yeah, I, I noticed you wrote those notes, but I didn't have any problems with it. I, I liked the music. I enjoyed that they kind of played with some Morricone style for some of the scenes in Italy. I think it's when when Michael steals Kay and, and it kind of takes her on a little tour. Um I, I kind of liked it. I didn't have any of the issues that, really? uh, that you did. Yeah. Well, you know what it was? It, and I've, I've sort of, re- I've, I've become more restrained over the last 48 hours. But 
there are two scenes in particular. There's one with, with Michael and Connie, and there's one with Michael and Kay where they're having this sort of side-lit conversation. It's really beautiful and dramatic. And the music makes it sound like they're in the middle of a video game cutscene. And it's so bad. It's like the it's a terrible pairing of the Godfather theme with what is going on on screen and what they're actually talking about. And uh, there was another one. Anytime Michael is in the hospital, the music is terrible <laughs> with this sequence. And it just feels like, oh my God, I've get me back to gears of war i mean that's kind of where i am <laughs> this whole thing oh, i so obviously your response makes me realize i play too many video games and i should just back <laughs> away from the tv <laughs> that's okay oh, that's anyway. so funny so we've gone through all three of these as far as cast and crew goes um so i went through the credits because you know i do these really insanely darky things um and i pulled <laughs> i pulled all the all the people who've worked on all three films, at least that are credited on, I, on IMDb, inevitably, you know, Coppola's family and friends are popping up all over the place and they're just not credited. So I'm missing some people. But I'm just wanting to see how well you can pin down all the people, or as many as you can, who actually were involved in all three films. Oh, this is terrible. I'm going to be terrible at this game. <laughs> Uh, it'll be fine. Well, let's let's start with crew. I'm not a trivia kind of guy. I'm really not a trivia. This is I'm terrible. You know I'm terrible at trivia. All right, go ahead. Start at the Do top. First. The the first two are should be very easy. So what have you have you, where have you put these somewhere? What am I supposed to do? No, just uh, no, just okay. okay. Do you want me to give you a roll? <laughs> What? No, I just mean, so you want me to, to just list names? Just throw, throw out names. See if there's anybody oh. that you can guess. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I would say um, uh, Al Pacino. <laughs> yes, Al Pacino has starred in all three films. <laughs> okay, so I, am I doing it right? That's what I want to know. You're, you're good. You're good so far. Okay. All three films. Yes. Cow, Andy. Okay, so I'm going to say... Uh, Al Pacino will start with that. I'm going to say um, uh, uh, Diane Keaton. Yep, you got two. How about um, Talia Shire? Yep. Okay. Um, how about, uh, was Al Martino in two or just in one and three? Did we just see Johnny in Fontaine one and three. In, in No, two? he's just in one and three. Oh, okay. All right, all right. I talked about somebody a few minutes ago who uh, was in all three. <laughs> just a few. See, now you're just making me feel bad. <laughs> oh. Who did you talk about? It? Oh, oh, wait a minute. Was it Sofia Coppola? Was well, it wasn't, three? but yes, she is in all three. She she plays baby, um, baby, baby Michael uh, Rizzi in the yeah. uh, the first one. She's a child on the ship in the second one, and she's Mary in the third one. So okay. yes. What about what about Enzo the baker? Was he? He's was only he in the first and third. He oh, doesn't pop up man. in the second one. He should have been down in Cuba he making that of. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. What about uh, Richard Bright? Richard Bright as Al Neary. Yes, Al he is Neary, in all three. Right. Okay. All right. Um, now, I, okay. Now we're done with actors, but I'm going to give you two. Actually, we're not done, but I'm going to give you give you a couple. <laughs> Uh, because you've done so well. John Cazale, uh, Cazale has been in all three. Technically, he died, but his archive footage is used in the beginning of the well, third one. Well, by that, James Kahn was also in all three, right? Didn't we no, see he, he, archive footage of him, too, in all no, three? No, only in the second. Uh, he's in the second one. He's in the second one, but the, yeah, he, we don't see him not, get shot? You, you never see him again in the oh, third okay. one. Oh, okay. All right. 
but interestingly, uh, Terry Livrano, who plays Teresa Hagen, was in all three. Really? Yeah. Was she, they, did they, she play a different act, a different character? No, she's <laughs> she's in all three, and she she's there, and they actually make a point of saying, "Oh, here's his wife, Ter- uh, uh, Teresa." When uh, when Michael introduces uh, um, his, um, their son to the whoever it was to the cardinal or whatever, that's really funny. Yeah. Okay. So and then and then uh, his mom pops up somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. So obviously there's family. His dad is in all three or is involved in all three. He's a kind of, of the composer, music, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's it with cast uh, going through. Uh, Dean, what the about crew Dean now. Tavlaris? He did. Does he do all yep. three? He did um, production design in all three. Obviously, Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis, yes. Nino Nino Rota. Yep. Well, uh, Nino Rota, yes, is kind uh, of like John Cazal, right? He yes, wasn't uh, involved in the third one, but yeah. Uh oh, gosh, Andy. Um, I'm, is it? I'm give me give, a hint. Just give me a hint. I'm, I'm going to give you two really obvious ones that okay. you, you, you're going to you sh- you're dumb that you're not saying these. Oh, Walter Coppola, Merch, Walter Merch, Coppola, Walter Merch. Well, well, Walter Merch, but Coppola and Puzo, of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and then these last two, Fred Roos uh, helped with the casting in the first one, and he's been working with Coppola and Zoetrope forever, and he was a casting. co-producer. Yeah, How would I get casting? casting? Well, we talked about Fred Roos in the first one, but I he's know. he's been working with Coppola forever. And this one you'll never know. But Gray Fredrickson was an associate producer on the first Godfather. And he was also an uncredited extra as a cowboy on the set at Waltz's studio. And then he went from associate producer to just co-producer on parts two and three. <laughs> So, Man. so there you have it. I never would have gotten that. But you got to admit, I did much better than I thought I would. You did, and I'm very proud of you. I noticed I didn't say I did much better than you thought I would. I don't want to. I don't want to give you a say. <laughs> oh, thank you. What a great quiz, Andy. That was really fun. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. It is it interesting. interesting. It's great. Uh, how did this one do after all of the hoopla? How did it do in the uh, awards season? Well, interestingly, this is the only film of the trilogy not selected for preservation by the U.S. National Film Registry. The first two have been. Um, But uh, this is, uh, you know, it did get nominated for seven Academy Awards. And along with Lord of the Rings, this Godfather trilogy does now share the distinction that all of its installments were nominated for Best Picture. So not many uh, trilogies can say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't win anything. It lost every award it was nominated (laughs) for. Um, It did not. I I think we mentioned earlier with Pacino, he did not get any recognition. Um, It's, you know, the him and the Oscars have not been friends. So the seven nominations that it was nominated for were Best Picture, Lost to Dances with Wolves. It was a big year for Dances with Wolves. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, Andy Garcia, was nominated. He lost to Joe Pesci for Goodfellas, which was the other big uh, gangster film that really kind of um, made this uh, one feel less. Yep. Um, Coppola got nominated for Best Director, but Kevin Costner won for Dances with Wolves. Finally, Gordon Willis gets nominated for Best Cinematography, but still does not win. It goes to Dean Semler for Dances with Wolves. Rightfully so. That's a gorgeous film. Definitely is. Uh, Dean Tavalaris and Gary Fettis were nominated for Best Art Direction Set Decoration. They lost to Richard Silbert and Rick Simpson for Dick Tracy. 
which uh, did have a really nice look. Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, the three editors were nominated for Best Editing, lost to Neil Travis for Dances with Wolves. Best Original Song, Promise Me You'll Remember by Carmine Coppola and John Bettis, uh, lost to Stephen Sondheim's Sooner or Later, I Always Get My Man from Dick Tracy. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Carmine Coppola, this was his last uh, real kind of uh, contribution to cinema because just a, a, about a month later after this, um, he ended up passing away. So Yeah. So. Um, and uh, yeah, and then like I said, no nominations for Al Pacino. Uh, Jeremy Irons won for Reversal of Fortune, and then Kevin Costner was nominated for Dances with Wolves. Robert De Niro for Awakenings, Gerard Depardieu for Green Card, and Richard Harris for The Field. Green Card. Now there you have it. Crying out loud. <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen The Field, so I can't speak to that one. But I've seen the rest of them. Yeah. Jeremy Irons is pretty brilliant in Reversal of Fortune. He sure is. But it also has uh, it also won the the, uh, the the golden raspberries. Yeah, boy, you know, Sophia, they just sure laid it on thick. Uh, worst oh. supporting actress and worst new star. Terrible. Terra it's a terrible award. It really is. It's just terrible. Although when Halle Berry did the Catwoman worst actress speech, I don't even know if that was a, a golden raspberry, but it was one of those worst awards. And she actually showed up and gave a speech. <laughs> Do you remember this? I I'll don't. Put it in the show notes. It's it's really she's she's class. She is all class. So as much as I I'm not crazy about those awards. When you have somebody who just owns it and is classy about it, that's that's good. Sandra Bullock did the same thing with um, was it all about Steve when uh, oh. she she won for that film the same year that she won the Oscar for Blindside, which I think is yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Right, and she brought a wagon full of copies of the movie, and she told everybody, <laughs> "No, watch it. Really, I don't think it's as bad as you all think it is." <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, I just love it. So much fun. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, so this one, you know, this was the end. This closed the chapter, but it's not without uh, pundits saying that there's room for a fourth film. That in fact there was a legendary fourth film in the works. Yeah, Mario, P- Mario Puzo died, unfortunately, before they were able to finish writing it. Uh, he and Coppola had kind of been planning this um, similar narrative to part two, where they would have had Robert De Niro reprising his role as a young Vito Corleone in the 30s, a young Santino Corleone gaining the Corleone family's political power. And then, uh, and I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in talks to play Sonny. Andy Garcia would have reprised his role as Vincent. During the 80s, haunted by the death of his cousin Mary, running the family business through a 10-year destructive war and eventually losing the family's respect and power, and then ending with one final scene with Michael Corleone before his death. Um, it apparently came close, according to Andy Garcia, but uh, it, you know, Coppola said that he was working on with Puzo and then Puzo died. Um, which is too bad, but Puzo's portion of the sequel dealing with the Corleone family in the 30s was written by uh, Edward Falco into a 2012 novel, The Family Corleone. So that is at least out there, even though that also had some issues getting published due to Paramount suing and all sorts of nonsense. But uh, if you want a little bit of a taste of what could have potentially been in that film, you can always read that book. How about the budget? Uh, How to do in the numbers? Well, The Godfather Part 3 has always been the black sheep of the family, and it definitely shows here in the num- numbers. Um, it was the most expensive of the trilogy, costing $54 million to make, or just over $99 million in today's dollars. 
This opened on Christmas Day in 1990, opposite Woody Allen's Alice and Peter Weir's Green Card. Unfortunately, nothing could topple the Home Alone juggernaut that had been number one at the box office since mid-November, and it held that spot until it was dislodged 12 weeks later in mid-February by Sleeping with the Enemy. Uh, Coppola's film ended up making a devilish $66.6 million domestically and $70 million internationally, bringing in an adjusted gross of $251.6 mil. That left it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 940000 about. Unfortunately for Paramount, it wasn't the windfall they needed to keep from getting sold. Oh, my goodness. Still 940000 That's a long minute. Yeah. yeah. Wealthy minute. Jeez. All right. Well, here it is. This is the part I have been uh, certainly waiting for. I'm very curious how this is going to stand when we rank it uh, over at flickchart.com slash the next reel. Head over there and uh, you can just scroll down on your podcast player of choice and you'll find the link to Flickchart right in the show notes. It'll take you straight to this movie and just add it to your list. And let's let's see how we do. What's up? First up, The Godfather Part 3 or Mad Max. Mad Max, Andy. I have issues with both of them, but I'm going to say Mad Max. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the that's the that's the decider. It's the it's in the bottom half. It is. It is the Godfather Part Three or the Host. You know how I feel about that movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say the Godfather Part Three. I'll say the Godfather Part Three. All right. How about the Godfather Part Three or What's Up, Doc? I would also probably watch the Godfather Part Three. I'm actually going to say what's up, Doc. Really? I was I really had a great time watching that movie. It's a great film. The family got into it. We all had a just a fantastic time. The Godfather Part Three is a is a solid film. I I mean I could go either way on this one. I'm leaning toward what's up, Doc, though. But if you're well, if I you're go, if you're strong, no, I'm so not strong. It's a it's a very high voiced probably. <laughs> so I really could, I could go either way. It sounds like you have made much more of a case for what's up, Doc. I'll I'll take uh, Babs. Let's do it. Yeah, The Godfather Part Three, or It Happened One Night. I'm huh. definitely It Happened One Night. Yeah, I think I'm It Happened One Night. The Godfather Part Three, or Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Oh, Nick and Nora. This is one where I feel like the substance in The Godfather Part Three weighs the the lightness of uh, Nick and Nora a little bit. And I'm kind of leaning toward the Godfather here, despite its Not me. Problems. I'll tell you. That, the, uh, the, the absolutely awesome, authentic, uh, weird sex scene in the studio <laughs> in Nick and Nora absolutely wins. That was, that was, that, it's just a very cute film and very well handled. Okay, I'll give it to you. Even though I will say, watching the scene with uh, with Andy Garcia and Sofia Coppola made me go make gnocchi immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You mean the 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 pasta ghost scene? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, it followed up with a really awkward uh, sex in an industrial kitchen sequence that I just can't <laughs> buy. Come on. I know. It was absurd. But boy, was the gnocchi good. <laughs> All right. The Godfather Part 3 or Red Belt. Little David Mamet. I am definitely Godfather oh. Part 3. Really? Ah, uh, yeah. Chewy. Yeah, I love Chewy, but I just didn't care for that movie very much. 
I I would definitely put on Red Belt for I'm pretty or Red Belt before Godfather in this in this case I I'm I'm pretty firmly there if you're if you're I'm, definitely I'm firmly, firmly there we got to go to the mat all right let's do it one, one two, two three, three paper totally legit all right the Godfather Part Three or Gattaca I would watch Gattaca first I'm gonna pick Gattaca as well. The Godfather Part 3 or Taxi Driver? Taxi Driver for me. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite film. See, I would I would pick The Godfather uh, first. Uh, but I'm going to acknowledge that I, I think Taxi Driver is the better film. Okay. <clears throat> Move along. <laughs> the Godfather Part 3 or The Sandlot? Wow. Little know, gravitas. This, this, would be an, this would be an upset. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, you know, I I would uh, I would probably put on Godfather Part Three first. I'm gonna say Godfather Part Three, even though Sandlot's definitely a breezier film to watch. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, we started at number one with the series and progressively went down. Ended up at two oh nine with this one. Two oh nine. Ouch. I did not expect it to fall so far. What does this do for your letterbox ranking, Andrew? I think I'm at three and a half for this one. There is definitely a half star of Andy Love in there. Well, maybe. That is not a legit <laughs> three and a half. I, you know, I, I found myself liking it more than I uh, kind of was expecting. So, yeah, I think I think it's a fair number to say. I'm a solid three on this one, so I'll I'll bring it down if I have to. All right, that's fine. All right, well that does it. Where uh, that that wraps our Godfather trilogy, and I'm gonna say, you know, I made a joke about our uh, our download numbers for our our Betty Davis series immediately preceding this one. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you, everybody who commented and and wrote in and said sorry about those download numbers. <laughs> well, don't worry. Uh, thank you, Godfather. Everybody's back. Uh, everybody who left during during Penny Davis is back, <laughs> and uh, and so it's delightful to see you again. Thank you to the Godfather trilogy. It was a real treat. I think I told you when we started. I had never actually uh, watched all of them in order in close proximity to one another. Another, and so this was a, a great deal of fun um, to to do this, even though we didn't we didn't quite. Uh, quite sync up on godfather three uh, as well as the first two it was it was wonderful to watch all these together it's a great story and a great addition to our list Absolutely. Where, where do we go for where do we go from here well we're having a film board uh this weekend with a little uh, rogue one star wars story quite excited about that quite excited you know what's really funny i'm reading the news and i'm following twitter and i'm 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 actually part of another slack group uh film related slack group and and the general consensus is with a sense of legitimate surprise you know what people really like this movie (laughs) (laughs) i think it's it's gotten a bad rap with uh with reports of big changes uh, massive tony gilroy reshoots uh, big changes in the ending of the film and uh and and still um you know those things never really bode well for big budget films and here we are people are actually saying that it's uh coming out okay i don't know i'm excited about it when are you when are you seeing it when are you seeing it i'm seeing it uh thursday night and then saturday morning oh i wish we could get out and do it earlier yeah all right well don't talk to me for a couple days 
Okay, I won't. You know, the, won't, you know the drill, it. right? Oh yes, I know. <laughs> well, you... okay. So that's that. Uh, that's our that's our film board that's coming up this weekend. But what are we what are we doing on uh, uh, next week? Next week we're going to be celebrating Christmas with uh, 1974's uh, horror film directed by none other than Bob Clark, who brought us a Christmas story. We're going to be watching Black Christmas. Leaf, <laughs> you're making me do this. I've never seen this film ever, so I'm really curious to actually uh, check it out. And I just got some copies of Black Christmas from our friends at Shout Factory to give to uh, to add to our pony prize. So, oh, wonderful! Thank you, Shout Factory. Absolutely, uh, that's awesome. That's great. Well, uh, I I dare I say, Andy, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but until then, I'm gonna go to bed. All right, man. Well, I think it's time to crack open a fine bottle of Coppola wine and celebrate this wonderful series. Amazon giveth, Andrew. Oh, as Amazon always doeth. I got one I'm having trouble making sense of. So uh, let me I mean, hear I it. get the I, I get the sense of it, but I, I hope you can help me pull it apart. Would you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's it's uh it's called. This is not part of the Godfather saga. At least shouldn't be. By Igalka Igalka, from 2012. Saw Godfather 1 and 2 15 years ago. After that, reviews about the three and wasn't really sure to watch it or not. Bought all three, then found out there's a fourth and a fifth and sit down for Godfather Weekend Marathon. Really regret watching it. It's like having a great steak and a great wine and the worst dessert you've ever tasted washed the whole dinner. Really wonders what Pacino was thinking when taking the job. Bad dialogues, bad script, bad dialogues, bad movie. Simple as that. Now, obviously, there is an English as a second language issue here. I'm not talking about that. Uh, <laughs> this so is fun. a this is a fine review, and thank you for sharing it, Egalka. What I wonder is where is Godfather four and five? <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> man, we need to dig into that. Well, clearly we got it all wrong planning a trilogy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no. For all I know, they're making one right now, oh, Andy. So funny. So funny. And it stars the Phantasm guy as the Don. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's yours? Well, I decided to go all the way up to the five stars and look at something there. So I did a five star oh. by Betty Bright uh, in 2013 who said, Such a fun classic. Betty Bright is not great with her punctuation, so uh, let's <laughs> let's give this a go. Okay. I loved this movie for one and for two. I don't see anything wrong with any of the actors' acting skills like a few other people commented, saying otherwise. Anyways, this was a birthday gift to myself, and I don't usually spend my birthday money on movies, but I have to say this was worth it, and I didn't waste my money. I'll watch this over and over. It's the best. I'd highly suggest buying this movie. <laughs> huh? <laughs> <laughs> Betty Bright. That was good. That was like that was like the parkour of Amazon reviews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Thanks, Amazon. Ready? One, yeah. two, two, three. three. Paper. <laughs> what? <laughs> what was that? was no not even a joke like we were counting and in my head i forgot what game we were playing like i know what are the options again (laughs) stone i was gonna say stone (laughs) and it just didn't go okay let's do it again okay sorry hold on Uh, rock, paper, or scissors. Those are your rock, choices, paper, yes. Scissors. There are only three choices. Right. All right. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>